Tech Point Zero, your popular technology show with Chris and Ben. You're listening to episode two, released in May 2019. My name is Ben, and as ever, I'm joined by Chris. In this episode, we'll be discussing Node-RED, the migration of Edge to Chromium, the Calm Window Manager, and speaking to Alec Holmes about contracting as an Android developer. So we'd like to talk about Node-RED. This is a visual programming language. I think it's from IBM. I'm just going to look now. Yeah, so it's been originally developed by IBM's Emerging Technology Services team and is now part of the JS Foundation. As you can guess from that, there's uh, some JavaScript involved, but it's fundamentally a visual programming language, mainly designed around Internet of Things. been great for sort of managing all the smart home devices I've got around the house. But equally so, if you need to dive into something and switch to JavaScript, you can just drop a JavaScript function in there and start writing pretty ordinary code. It's all based around message passing. You have an event of some sort happen, and then that will trigger a message to get passed to another node, and that node processes the message and passes it on, and that node processes the message and passes it on again, and again, and again, and again. Equally so, like instead of just passing it on once, you can pass it on potentially multiple times so you can sort of fan out the message or you can use switch statements to just send it down one particular path and with that kind of structure you can pretty quickly build some fairly powerful pieces of functionality for your smart home that sounds really cool so could you give us some examples of some of the functionality that we might use node-red for yeah, so I've got a few here. I'm just going through the kind of the ones that I probably use the most. The laziest one <laughs> turns the garage light off after 15 minutes of it being on. Whenever the garage light changes, that sends a message out that just checks to make sure that the light was switched on and not switched off. If it is switched off, then we send a message down the pipeline saying to switch off the light. And then we have one other node that delays the processing of that message by 15 minutes. So sort of waiting to send the message. And then after 15 minutes, it will send the message and turn the light off. And that's basically because I very rarely spend more than 15 minutes in the garage putting my bike away. That sounds really cool. If you had to describe another language or concept to compare this with, what would be the close representation that sort of maybe I would have come across before? I don't think it has necessarily the sort of scalability of these technologies, but the closest like mental model I've, I've had when I've come to writing this sort of stuff is RabbitMQ and other distributed queuing systems. Okay, yeah. And I found that actually uh, talking to my friends, the people who work with that technology a lot, seem to be the ones that get it a lot quicker and they say, you could do this bit better, you could do this bit better. And it's kind of odd thinking about refactoring when it, it looks quite simple, like it's just <laughs> drag and drop. But if you keep dragging and dropping more and more boxes on, the, the, the most complex routine I have, the morning wake up. So that has to do a bunch of different things in terms of like check whether or not it's a, a work day. If it is a work day, it needs to check if we're after 6.45 in the morning. Has to check if I'm not on holiday because it accesses Google Calendar. Wow. Get the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Guess current time sets up a ratio that is like based on current time, and then changes the color and brightness of every light in the room, sort of based around a separate ratio for that particular light. In the past, years and years ago, I had a dedicated alarm clock that would wake me up every morning, and it was very dumb. It had a switch that had on and off, and if it was on, it knew what time to wake me up, and it was up to me to remember to turn it off at weekends. For a good number of years now, I've used my phone. It's got a bit more intelligence. I can set it to have a schedule on a particular day, but it doesn't do any checking like to calendars or anything like that. But it's, it's a fairly robust system. Unless Apple screw up an iOS update, which they've done once or twice, the alarm clock works. How robust is this? The only issues I've had with robustness is testing it. I think that's probably the thing that's most difficult to 
work with no red for is testing like i've mm. not come across any automated testing tools i would imagine something exists there isn't really an easy way of getting into there and checking everything there's a debug node and that will let you output whatever the message is at that stage and most of the reliability problems we've had have been when i've tried to change something once it's done <laughs> it's been incredibly reliable other than a little bit of time zone weirdness on the raspberry pi because i've got it installed on a raspberry pi at home ah yeah for the longest time at the beginning i had it set up so that you couldn't turn the lights off start coming on any turning them off would would just reset them back to where they should be that was much to my wife's annoyance she made me add some functionality to enable them to turn it off which isn't necessarily somewhere that i found node red particularly easy to do okay what i ended up having to do was find a trigger to sort of say right we want this off now which was the master bedroom wall switch and when you press that button to turn them off it stores the time that the button was last pressed and then during the routine it checks to make sure that time isn't within the current session the sort of current ramp up right and if it is then it says no we're not doing this anymore just the idea you can just set that once and you don't have to worry about timing and consistencies that's something you have to get used to with all of this events can happen all over the house and they're not necessarily going to be received in the order they happened them all of the iot stuff is designed around being low power consumption so they're not too worried if it's 200 milliseconds 500 milliseconds, sometimes multiple seconds slow to send a message to your server and that can mean that you, you think something's going to work as you imagined it <laughs> and then you actually set it up and it doesn't at all how easy is this to version control i screw up a lot i think i think everyone does i can imagine you're having a great complicated actually here's another sub question do you program this on a canvas or a board or what is there a terminology for what you program this on you have different flows which are essentially tabs at the top of the screen you get a squared line paper kind of effect and then a bunch of tabs on them and i think it's a pretty infinite space it's if not it's a very large space just to clarify this is within a web browser this is all within a web browser yeah so you sort of install the raspberry pi and you can access it remotely a little bit you might have to do something on the actual terminal so you can install different node types that have been written in javascript i've tried writing them it's quite simple to uh, create new ones i created okay one, uh just to control like a little LCD screen on top of my Raspberry Pi. And you can install them from NPM. But sometimes when you install them, you have to restart the uh, Node-RED server just to get things going again. That's the really the only time I've had to go, other than updating the system itself, that I've had to go into Terminal. Everything else can happen with from the uh, web front end. There isn't any versioning as such. You do have this uh, sort of deployment idea. So you make all of your changes and then you hit a button called deploy and you can deploy like absolutely everything only modified flows or only the like the current one that will clear out any sort of memory in those nodes so so, so nodes can can store what's called context which is like sort of local variables they will be completely cleared when you restart so you have to think about how things initialize when when everything gets redeployed afterwards I've, i found it best to try and write things in such a way that it doesn't matter like you just accept that this might not be set and work out if it's set to the thing that it should be so you mentioned you've got a raspberry pi you've mentioned that this is done through a web browser and you've mentioned deploying is everything happening local to your raspberry pi or is it uh, are you writing things on a like an internet service that's then deploying to your raspberry pi no, everything happens local to your own network, which is something I really like about it. Well, while I do have all the smart devices, as much as I possibly can, I try to keep everything local. For a long time, I used Philips Hue without connecting it to their cloud platform. And if you've got Philips Hue, this will work with local Philips Hue devices that have never been connect connected to the cloud platform. It will, it will connect to your hub locally and work fine with that. But in terms of architecture, the, the 
Node-RED sits on the Raspberry Pi, and that provides both the running of the programs and the editing interface for you to adjust things. Deployment, from what I've seen, is sort of it building a structure or program of what you want it to do. So it sort of has a compilation step, for want of a better term. So so I guess in the their language, deploy is somewhat analogous to compile and run. Yeah, it's kind of, kind of similar to that in in that state but there isn't a, a separate deploy server that you're pushing anything to you've you've got to live with the fact and this is where the debugging becomes a bit more difficult you've got to live with the fact at least in the initial in sort of the default install that when you make a change you have to test it on the real network which is why i think it's really really good for home network deployments smart home devices uh anything that's sort of non-critical i i personally at the moment wouldn't use this for like critical business applications, it's not it's not there yet. Cool. So, what do you get out of the box, and uh, what will this thing talk to? Do you have to sort of add plugins to get it to talk to other IoT devices? So, out of the box, you'll get the web interface for editing stuff, and, and some of the sort of simpler nodes. So, there's some input ones that are just saying like regular inputs or one-time inputs, or you can even like trigger one on a click. All of the sort of debug stuff, some some timers, that sort of side of things um, and some stuff to do uh, http requests and responses and mqtt that's a an internet of things of protocol it's supposed to be very very low power so there's, there's a few of them and then if you go on to npm and start looking there's, there's an interface within node red to do that i think it's called manage palette yeah there's a there's a palette so that's where you can get all of your additional nodes from and there's some that just do useful things like send a message on a schedule i have one of them to enable the to like start the schedule for the lights in the bedroom. There's some that will notify Google Homes of things. You can send messages for particular events to a particular Google Home. There's a bunch that will deal with Philips Hue. There's some that will send emails, tweets, Slack. There's geofencing ones. So you install an app on your phone and it will send a request <laughs> off to say that you've left the, the geofence, uh, which I keep trying to get around to. I want I've never I want I've got it installed and I want to find an excuse to play with it really. It's called Redbot, which is a natural language processing bot that will, you know, process your request in a hopefully intelligent way and send back a, a sensible response. Uh, there's a Discord bot, so I've uh, on other Discords I've got stuff set up to send particular messages at certain points. And there's also this is another thing, it's it's quite good for this is actually a situation where I almost might use it at work. Quick ways of building dashboards. If you've got a bunch of network requests coming in, there's a dashboard thing where it runs a web interface on another port on the on the same machine, and you can just push data to the dashboard, uh, and it's very easy to wire everything up from there, as long as you've got a node that will be able to receive that data in the first place. That's where, you know, depending upon what you're trying to graph and, and measure, it's a bit more difficult. I've got one set up. Uh, to track the battery charge state in the switches because the Philips Hue switches are all wireless and they don't have any way on the app of reporting their current battery status. So I do that with this. Uh, and yeah, Google Calendar integration, network pings, there's an absolute ton of them on the... Um, that's really the magic of this is the number of people who have written the connectors, the nodes between them. Last couple of questions then. If I wanted to get started with this, where would I go to uh, sort of get more information? If you go to nodered.org, there should be instructions there on how to install it. There's a set of instructions separately for the Raspberry Pi. But if you really want to, you can just run it locally. There's a Docker deployment, which is Fuzzmore, is really, really straightforward.
So now I'd like to talk about Microsoft switching the Edge browser to the Chromium engine. I, I think it's actually a fork of Chromium. We've taken a look at the build. It's a canary build, which means it's expected to have a lot of bugs and problems. So we're not really judging any of the like issues with the browser itself, but looking at the direction Microsoft is going with this. So I have not tried it yet, uh, primarily because at home I don't run Windows and um, I can't put that kind of thing onto my work computer. I've taken a quick look at it. My my basic feedback is that it's definitely Chrome. Like it feels like Chrome. It looks like mm-hmm. Chrome. <laughs> the UI is very, very similar. They've made some nice improvements. Weirdly, the right-click menu looks like Material UI, like the, the Android UI theme. There's some nice improvements. It's got the auto sign-in. So if you're on Windows and you're signed into your Microsoft account, it just automatically signs you in. You don't have to worry about typing another password or anything. It seems like a pretty good job of like forking Chrome and Microsoftifying it, I suppose. Interesting. Little bit of background, or rather some, some time frames of this. This whole transition was announced in December last year. And this first build that we've got, I believe, came out 8th of April this year. So we've had sort of four months or so of, of development. I'm impressed at how quick it's been. I don't, I don't know much about like actual browser development like working directly on the browser but it seems very fast what they've done they've made a lot of changes to the the outside of the browser not the rendering engine not the core bit but yeah there's it's very much a microsoft experience it's very quick it's very snappy it, it seems seems nice in the same way chrome seems nice so while I haven't tried it, I have done a little bit of digging through some of the slides that were shared by Microsoft over the last few days and some of the differences between what is Edge and what is Chromium. So some of those differences are that. So, And one of the things that, that definitely stood out is that what it looks like now uh, as, a, as very much a, a Chrome clone, if you will, is just early development. It will become more Edge-like in the future. This is interesting. One thing I'd like to add, I think they've done a great job of the settings UI. So I I don't know if I'm the only person who thinks this, but you go into the settings in Chrome and it just feels like a mess. Like it's just a bunch of panels that collapse up and down. Trying to find the setting you want is very difficult. I don't find the categorization very easy. Microsoft have changed it so that the categories are on the left. There's more categories, they're more they're more visible. That I think they just make more intuitive sense. One of the other interesting things that I had noted that uh, Microsoft have done already is I believe the figure was 30. I, I think that uh, Microsoft have switched or ch- switched off or changed over 30 Chromium properties. Now, these are mainly to do with Google services or, or Android connectivity and, and instead replace them with a more Microsoft experience, as you alluded to with the Microsoft account. They've also turned off Adblock, which seemed odd. That being said, I did a default install of Chrome because I, I use Firefox for most of my browsing. And I found Chrome had as many adverts as Edge, Edge Chromium, whatever, whatever we're calling it. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't seem to make much difference. Is it really a loss? I don't, I don't think so. I, I mean, I'm just going to install, uh, is it uBlock Origin? Every time, straight away. So I, I think that one of the things I've read is that Microsoft have already committed quite an awful lot of code back to the Chromium project. One of Chrome's 
biggest complaints, especially among people that use other browsers and maybe are slightly techy and um, have a feel for these kind of things, is that Chrome is very sluggish and it you know gobbles up all your RAM and uh, that kind of thing. And, and therefore, on laptops, will sort of drain your battery life quicker. One of the things that I suppose Microsoft is able to do is by integrating Chromium further into Windows, or at least maybe using some of its special understanding of Windows, might be able to commit some of that knowledge upstream into the Chromium project and therefore make all Chromium-based browsers more lightweight, certainly on a, on a Windows platform. I, so I don't know if we're going to see a dramatic change in that. I would, I would imagine that most of the energy efficiency of a browser comes from the architecture of the browser not from its interaction with the operating system now if i'm wrong <laughs> i that's that's quite possible because i'm not i'm not a browser architect but i can't yeah given the age of of chrome i can't see them having missed too much in your opinion chris why do you think that uh, microsoft have made this move if, I, if i'm gonna say why why I suspect they made this move I want to go back through the history first for for our audience. I entered the industry basically in 2006. I was at uni from 2003. And at that point, IE6, Internet Explorer 6, was the only browser you could develop for. I believe at its peak, it had something like an 80% market share, i.e. together with all the previous versions, yeah, when people still used versions before IE6 hit, I believe, 95%, or at least approached that. At that time, Microsoft controlled the web. Like, if Microsoft didn't want to add a new feature to the browser, and they basically didn't add any features to browsers, the it didn't happen. That meant that for at least five years, probably more like a decade, there wasn't really much development in terms of web technologies other than people figuring out clever ways to do more impressive things with the existing browser, which was IE6. Eventually, Firefox started taking market share from Microsoft because people wanted better browsers and developers wanted to be able to work on better browsers, so encourage their friends and family to install them. And those browsers got more features added, particularly Firefox. People got dependent upon those features and slowly people got pulled away from IE. I think just very briefly, it was it's important at that point to remember that Mozilla's big strapline at the time was liberate the web and, and you know free the web, re rescue back our our open open web from the clutches of Microsoft that had all their own proprietary extensions and and you know and, and the like. So in two thousand eight, Google released Google Chrome. That took market share from both Internet Explorer and Firefox, and has continued to for the last decade basically. We're now in a situation where it's almost reversed. Like Google have the market dominant position and Microsoft have almost no market position. And they tried to fix that with Edge. They were like, right, we're going to throw all of this away. We're going to start again. We're going to build a better browser. By all intents, they, they did. They, they built a browser that is fast and power efficient and supports most modern web technologies. Maybe it's a little bit behind in some situations and 
crucially, just jumping again the there, although they created this new browser Edge, what they were really creating was the Edge HTML engine. And rather than forcing that into Internet Explorer and breaking a whole lot of legacy web applications, they created this new Edge browser to sort of showcase it and, and house it and pave forward the future of browsing on Windows. So now Microsoft are in a situation where they've they've lost the dominance of the browser market. They've tried to create a new engine, which while it was well received, did not get great uptake. Is it worth the cost of maintaining it? Building engines is expensive and time consuming. Google are already doing it for you. It certainly seems a, a massive draw. And this is one of the things that we've seen time and again in proprietary systems adopting open source projects, because why do it yourself when you can use somebody else's? And there is already a whole community of people there maintaining this that you can just, just sort of plug in. I, I suppose part of me thinks it's a cost-saving measure for Microsoft. They get to have a browser that's branded with their blue E and <laughs> don't have to pay for the development costs. In fact, one of their competitors pays for a lot of the development costs. Hmm. I did think it was very interesting when I was doing a little bit of research before the show. It was interesting to, to learn that all the web views within Windows are still going to be powered by Edge HTML for the foreseeable future. I don't know. There's a possibility that you know, you've got the classic Microsoft strategy of, what is it, embrace... Embrace, extend, ex extinguish. Yeah. I don't know if they could do that with Chrome. That would, that would take a very long time. And they'd have Google fighting against it. I think with Google being such a large player, the only way that Microsoft are going to be able to wrestle Chromium out of Google's hands is by doing effectively exactly what Google did to Apple um, by forking, by Microsoft forking Blink or Chromium and making their own project that is somehow more attractive to various other projects. And I think it's, it's perhaps a, a useful time as well to go back and look at some of the other projects that have already done this. Uh, famously, Opera used the proprietary Presto engine, but in 2013 switched to Chromium. So that was a, sort of one of the, the first big ones, as far as I was aware, that we had a, a marketplace where there were multiple browsers all with their own browser engines. And here was Opera, a big proprietary browser using a proprietary engine, and they just you know, threw it all away and, and switched to Blink. Yeah, well, almost every browser has now switched to Blink. So I think, believe Safari's Blink? No, no. So Safari is still WebKit, which, from which Blink is forked from. Okay, I see. Yeah, yeah. So it's still very similar in a lot of ways. It shares that same sort of ancestry. Absolutely. So we, we're ending up in a, a bit of a monoculture on the web now, where almost every browser at least is either is is Blink or is from something that Blink descended from. And in the past, that's caused problems. You know, you know, with, with IE, that <laughs> meant that a very small number of people controlled development on the web and what could and couldn't be done. And we've, we've had some, some really good examples of, of bad monocultures in, in recent times as well. For instance, almost everybody that did anything to do with SSL cryptography was using OpenSSL. And then Heartbleed came along. And all of a sudden, basically, the entirety of the web was subject to this, this bug because everybody used OpenSSL. It was a standard but everybody used one implementation of it. And then when you've got things like LibreSSL come along, all of a sudden, 
if there's a bug in one, even though one's a fork of the other, LibreSSL has had an awful lot of work done to it, meaning that you could theoretically swap one out for another to mitigate issues when they're announced. There's definitely like security issues are going to be potentially easier to exploit, which means which also improves the the value of exploiting it. So if you're an attacker and there is some vulnerability, if it affects 20% of the install base, then that is less valuable than something that affects 90% of the install base. My ultimate worry is one corporate entity having control over what we can and can't do on the web. I don't think the W3C has necessarily been a great organization to protect against this sort of stuff happening, especially around DRM. No. Whether or not this means that there's more people contributing, like that, like Microsoft and Google can sort of balance each other out maybe, or whether or not this means that one of them will essentially be able to declare victory in the second round of the browser wars. Uh, yeah, and we'll end up with an unhealthy monoculture again. So I think it's important to remember that at this time we've got three main engines one of which is the Blink engine inside Chromium. And that is, of course, what we've been talking about. We've still got WebKit, which is different, which is predominantly Safari. And of course, we've already spoken about it, Firefox and related browsers running on the Gecko engine are still an option um, and are still there liberating the internet sort of 10, 15 years on. So I, I use Firefox, came to it after Quantum got released which was their big speed upgrade because it basically did make it fast enough to use. Like the, the speed difference between Chrome and Firefox was significant. I I actually am a huge Firefox fan at the moment. I've even got it installed on my phone, which I never thought the day would come where I'd be able to install Firefox on my phone and like it. They allow plugins on the phone, which Chrome didn't. Maybe that's changed recently. I don't know. Just crucially, your phone is an Android phone. Yes, I do have an Android phone. You're not going to be able to do this on iOS because everything has to be Safari. But the, the nice bit is, I, yeah, I can have the extensions installed on the browser so I can have ad block on my mobile phone, which again, <laughs> browsing an ad-free web on my mobile is very, very pleasant. I, sh I, do, I should add there, I wish I didn't have to install ad block. I wish the web worked in a way where I could support the sites I visit by them showing me unobtrusive adverts. But I do not want to turn up to every website, have the risk of virus or other infection or other, other attack on my phone, have three or four pop-ups appear on the page that I have to close before I can start consuming the content. The risks are far greater than the rewards of the content provided. So I, I have Adblock installed primarily as a security measure. And, and also that if you're not pulling down the adverts, that's saving you in terms of data allowance, but also processing power that drains your battery. So one of the other benefits that Microsoft will get by going into a Chromium base is that Chromium is multi-platform. It runs on Windows, it runs on Linux, it runs on Mac. And one of the things that Microsoft announced or hinted at certainly when they announced the move to Chromium was that they would be able to bring the Edge browser to macOS. They've already got that on the Canary build. You can't download it, but they've already got a download button like coming soon. Fantastic. Now, it's perhaps interesting to note that this will be the first Microsoft browser to come to the Mac since 
Internet Explorer. I'm just trying to figure out what version it was. There was a version of Internet Explorer for uh, Mac OS Classic, and it ceased to be anything in 2003. So it'll be the first uh, Microsoft browser to be on Mac OS since 2003. So this week, I'd like to have a chat about the Calm Window Manager, uh, also known or mostly known as CWM. Probably just wanted to glide over what a window manager is in very basic terms. And I'm going to talk about it in relation to the X11 system, not what you would find on Windows or Mac OS. So a window manager is the thing that manages windows, how they're placed on your desktop, how they get moved around and open and close. There are very basically two types of window manager. You've got a tiling window manager where your windows, be that terminals or browser or whatever, is literally tiled on, on the screen and they, they don't over, overlap each other. Now, two examples of that would be DWM and i3 are tiling window managers. The other kind is stacking. And stacking is what you're more used to in, say, Windows and Mac OS, where windows can be dragged around and, and placed on top of each other and overlap a little bit and, and that kind of thing. And some popular examples of them are Fluxbox, Windowmaker, and TWM, which has been around since the late 80s. And of course, CWM. CWM is a stacking window manager. Moving on from there, also wanted to kind of differentiate what a window manager is to a desktop environment. Desktop environments include the likes of KDE, GNOME, and XFCE. And a desktop environment will include a window manager. For instance, XFCE includes the XFWM window manager. Because they themselves still need to arrange windows on a screen, but they will also include various utilities. For instance, XFCE uh, includes the Thunar file manager. They will contain panes and widgets for those panes, like clocks and taskbars and all of that kind of stuff. So a desktop environment is sort of the whole package, if you like, and the window manager is just sort of bare bones, if you will. Yeah, so it's a bit of a arranges windows on, on your desktop and draws them in the appropriate place. Yes, absolutely. A little bit about my history of, of using GUIs on, on computers, and, and this is extremely brief the last few years. So since using FreeBSD, I have been a user of the XFCE desktop environment. I've used it on Linux before. It was lightweight. It was, it was nice and easy. I predominantly run FreeBSD every day in a VirtualBox VM. So having a nice lightweight environment was, was good for that. I kind of had an itch. You know how you listen to Linux users and they get an itch to, to distro hop? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I've never done that. <laughs> I had an itch to try something else. And I I knew that I didn't want to try GNOME or KDE. I've, I've used them before. They're perfectly fine. But I'd always had an itch to try just a plain old window manager. Now, I tried some tiling window managers in the past. And I could not get on with their keyboard-driven nature. They, they always seem quite com complicated. Yes, I've, I've had this here for a little while. And, I, and like I said, I've tried other window managers because there seemed to be something very, I suppose, Unixy is probably a really bad way of putting it, but something really kind of like very geeky about using just a win window manager. And so I've tried some in the past and some of them that I've tried, you've had to go as far as compiling the configuration into the window manager. Now, for me, that's a bit too complicated, a bit too, it feels a bit too permanent. And so I've kind of tried things a little bit. I've maybe tried things on a home laptop or, or VM, 
and didn't like it within the first five minutes and sort of gone back to, to XFCE. Before Christmas, I read on the FreeBSD forums that a user had, had been using CWM. And it stuck out for a couple of reasons. One, it was very simple to configure. Two, here was somebody that was claiming that they weren't, you know, uber smart and they were using it. And it was really easy. It comes from the OpenBSD project, which is known for its cleanliness of code and simplicity and all of that leading to very secure pieces of software. Now, the crucial change between going at it this time versus going at any other window manager change is that I didn't do the change at home. I did the change at work, which resulted in about a day of going, right, I've launched CWM. There are no menus. There is no taskbar. There are no buttons. I've literally just got a blank desktop. What the heck do I do? So at that point, start on my phone now reading man pages for CWM. Control, Alt, and Enter. Press that and you get your terminal. At the time, I still had the XFCE terminal configured as my terminal. But nowadays, I use the Xterm terminal. And slowly, I made changes to my configuration to make it much more usable for me. And so this is a window manager that is predominantly driven by the keyboard. Uh, as I say, Control Alt Enter will give you a new terminal window. Using Alt and any of the arrow keys will allow you to move a window around. And Alt and Control and an arrow key will allow you to resize a window. So just, just to make it clear, because I've used a tiling window manager before, which was awesome. And my experience was there's there'll be different patterns for ranging windows, but you're you're normally restricted in some way to those patterns and some variation of them, like resizing the panes in them. The windows can't be put on top of each other. Is that is that all the same sort of thing as CWM? So this is interesting because no, because CWM is a stacking window manager, I can arrange windows however I like. And in fact, I believe there is some rudimentary support for tiling but it is almost completely you know, where, where you want to put the windows, you put the windows. And there's some nifty shortcuts like Control-Alt equals to make a window fully top and bottom, fully high if you like. And then another keyboard shortcut which eludes me right now to make it fully wide. And then there's a separate one to make it sort of full screen. I use XFC day to day. And I probably use it like a tiling window manager. So I'm probably more on that side than, than anything else. <laughs> the only reason I don't use a tiling window manager is occasionally having a mouse is, is quicker. And I do a lot of pair programming in the company I work for. Switching people between computers is already difficult enough as it is. I don't want to make it any more difficult for my colleagues. Absolutely. And I think so one of the benefits to me is that I don't do any sort of pair programming. I do have people come over to my workstation and certainly look at it. And occasionally, if they're trying to troubleshoot something on a on an internal web page or something, I might you know say, hey, you, you sit down and show me. So I've got some questions in terms of things I've noticed from other people interacting with someone else's desktop environment. Can you change window focus with the mouse by clicking on a window? I have it set, and I don't know if you can change it, but I have it set so focus follows mouse. So if you mouse over a window, that gets focus. But it doesn't rise to the top. Right. But if I click on the window, will it rise to the top? No, you have to alt-click. But that is configurable. Right. Okay. <laughs> this is where I think it would be difficult to pair. Because someone needs to come onto the computer. At least use the windows that are there. Absolutely. Something that normally causes problems. This is why I have XFCE multi-desktop display on my toolbar. is so that people can just click between mm -hmm. the desktops. I use a 3 by 2 grid of desktops. 
I try to never have a window covering another window. That's very much how my brain works. Separating things spatially makes it easier for me to work. Does not work for some of my colleagues. <laughs> and I would say that generally speaking, when I use a desktop, any desktop, I am generally tiling windows to my own needs. If you look at my desktop right now, it's Mac OS. I've got a Safari window open. I've got an Audacity window open. I've got a terminal window open and none of them are overlapping each other. Two things just quickly. So some of the benefits that I find from using just a, a window manager of a whole desktop environment is certainly with me using a VM to run my sort of workstation in, if you like, is that every little bit of memory that I can get back is beneficial to me. So by running just a window manager, I run in, it's literally a, a few megabytes worth of, of memory. I can tell that it makes the rest of the system more usable. It also means that I use the mouse less because I can I can move windows around and resize things with the keyboard. And so I'm not changing to the, to the mouse quite so much as I I was. Now I am still to some degrees to move things around from to, you know, between two screens, but I'm using it less and to make bigger movements rather than to make those little fine adjustments that I want. The other thing which I think is kind of cool, maybe not a benefit, is because it doesn't come with a, a terminal terminal emulator and I've gone back to using Xterm, I've learned an awful lot more about X. So and even down to things that I find are really cool, like, you know, when you double click on a, on some text in your terminal, normally it won't select white space. So you'll, you'll just get like a word. Now, I've learned through configuring X how to change what character classes get it kind of breaks on i find that's really cool but it's it's all for me learning about how my computer works I'm, I'm sort of it feels closer to the metal if you like and it it allows me to have a greater understanding of the environments that i'm working in that i don't necessarily need to know but i find is ultimately useful and satisfying hi today we've got alec holmes here to talk to us about the difference between contracting and employment hello yes uh, i'm alec holmes I've been an Android developer for 10 years, a contractor for three years, worked as a team lead, an Android developer, a remote developer, an on-site developer, and a freelance developer. I've worked in basically every position that I can think of, really. Currently, I'm doing contracting, and I spend, on my current contract, I do three days in London and two days at home. What made you decide to do contracting? So a friend of mine convinced me to take it up after I'd been disgruntled with a permanent position. Oh, so this was about three, four years ago. I moved to London. I started working for an agency in London. It wasn't all I thought it would be when I dreamt about it. And a friend of mine was already contracting. A friend that I had previously employed in my team that I was working with, we left at the same time. He pursued contracting. I pursued other things until I ended up moving to London. So it got to the point where I was unhappy enough that he said, look, you've got to do contracting. I've been saying this. This is like the third or fourth time I've told you, just give it a go. And yeah, the, the beginning of it was a little bit scary because you kind of go out there and you've got to figure it all out yourself. But it really was for the best. Do you think that being in London has helped to contribute to your decision to, to contract? And do you think it's helped you gain contracts? Massively. And the biggest problem that I face recently is that my local area in Bournemouth doesn't really support contracting or freelance work for Android development. It's just not something that the businesses around here really like to pursue. It's something I'm trying to change people's perceptions on because... People like to imagine that contractors are kind of money grabbing or mercenary, but often it's just they've got a particular skill set and often companies might need that skill set. Yeah, there's a lot of advantages that a company can reap through hiring contracts instead of perm staff. 
Why is that? Why, why would a contractor have different skills to bring to a team than a permanent member of staff? A good contractor might have seen more work environments, seen more projects and seen more problems, especially if they're specialised in a particular area. So for me, for example, I've been doing this for 10 years. I've seen over 20 projects and I've worked for over 10 different companies, which sounds flighty and dangerous. But the thing is, I get deployed onto projects. Usually when they're in a crisis, I get in, I fix it. The project runs out of budget and then I have to move on. But if you're hiring a contractor, it allows you to expand your team very quickly because often contractors will come in at a week's notice. It makes it very volatile as the contractor. But as a company, you can do that. It also means if your project is tailing off, you can usually give something like seven days notice and then you're free and clear. So you can spin it up and spin it down at your leisure. One of the things you mentioned about is how people perceive contractors as just sort of flying in and sort of grabbing work and then presumably running off. Is that end bit true? I mean, you've kind of said how you can be sort of drafted in and bring your wealth of experience, but then do you just, you know, pack up your bags and leave? Or is there sort of a handing off procedure that you would do? So it's definitely a handoff. So it's kind of professional courtesy to hand over a project. I mean, it depends on how the project ends. I've not seen this myself, but if it ends in like a fiery burning fireball <laughs> then there's nothing to hand over right handing over an ashes yeah. is not really something to do yeah in general you have a handover with the rest of the team you wind it down um, something i like to do is i don't like committing huge features near the end of a contract because mm. i'm not going to be Makes there sense. to see it go live i just don't think that's a good plan it seems irresponsible to do so also i've been on contracts before where after i've left i've made friends there and if one of them contacts me and says look i'm building this feature we built this part together have you got any advice on how to follow that same pattern. And yeah, I'll speak to them because they're your friends, right? It's not nice to leave them hanging. So yeah. So normally, when I start a new job, it definitely takes me a fair amount of time to ramp up into the project. I particularly enjoy projects that have a lot of domain knowledge to really get into. I like being on long term projects. The current project I'm on at work, I've had about three years working on it now, maybe three and a half years working on it. And that means I can anticipate the customer's needs very quickly. I can think about problems they might encounter, problems they've had before, how that integrates with what they're doing 18 months away. How do you do that as a contractor? Is that something that contractors are good for? Or do you need a mixture? So I think basically what you're describing is domain knowledge. And yeah, it's typically something that you will struggle to find with a contractor unless you hire someone that's already worked in that domain. And often that's quite an advantage. So for example, a bank will often look for someone with fintech experience, so financial tech sector experience, to come in and hit the ground running. And that's kind of what they mean when they say, we need someone to come in and hit the ground running, is they want someone that can drop in, merge with their team, understand their process, so how they're running their team, whether it's sprints, Kanban, and just be able to take hold of the project and get going. But I think the larger question there is, how do you get to grips with the project quickly? And can you predict where a product is going? And specifically, I've found that the domain knowledge is probably the most complex, most difficult part of a project to get to grips with. Well, I guess the teams I end up working on usually have kind of like a product owner that brings the domain knowledge. Yep. And they're kind of a source of the data. There's also longer running members of the team that's already there. So yep. they are there to kind of perform a handover. If we're working in sprints as well, it's quite handy because... Kind of we define stories and then it's kind of a hive mind rather than just me kind of going at it myself. Would it be perhaps correct to say that while somebody like Chris might find that he's got all this domain knowledge and he's able to anticipate customers' needs in the future, 
you as a contractor would be someone really good to bring in for a particular section of work and you wouldn't be bringing in somebody for, to do that kind of fairly large range of things. And in fact, as far as you are concerned, you may see Chris actually performing multiple roles, even though Chris may himself not not see that. Oh, yeah. So I discussed this recently. So one of the things I do is I hold a mobile meetup or a meetup for developers, designers, and all kinds of people in Bournemouth. And the last session we did was about what makes up a mobile team. And I went through all the roles that I thought existed within a team. And then quite a few of the people there run small businesses and they wear many hats. So where I'm talking about, oh, there's a project manager and an Android dev and a designer, hmm. they say, hmm. well, hang about, because I wear most of those hats and I do a lot <laughs> of the work and things that works for them. And due to budgets and that kind of stuff, that's what they do. And it works. But it's not something I see much of in London or especially on the projects that I end up on. So the roles are much more narrowly defined than a small team. Some people call it siloing, but it's not kind of siloed and then throwing it over the fence type of approach. The way that you maintain input into kind of each part of the product when you're defining your stories for a sprint, you bring people in and have an elaboration session with all those members. So it's like you're getting one person with many hats, except for that person doesn't kind of have to switch competing hats. So, for example, the account manager, been on projects before that don't have kind of an active account manager, and it's got a project manager that's trying to do both. And it tears them apart a little bit because the project manager, in my eyes, is trying to do the best for the team. So to reduce scope creep, whereas the account manager is trying to please the customer which is kind of the opposite. It's kind of, it is scope creep in a good way. They're like, yeah, we can give you more things. That's super. It's just to watch someone have that internal struggle in their brain. It's, yeah, I don't wish it on anyone. So when you start a new contract, how do you integrate into the team and the sort of company structure? So day one, I usually just say, hey, hello, can I have access to your source code and all of your Jira tickets, please? And then kind of see what the lay of the land is. So see what's in Jira, see what's in flight look at the code, see how many branches are active right now, kind of pick up on how maybe what they're using. So they're using Git flow. Then a regular senior member of the team is usually going to bring you up to speed, just like, oh, we're using Git flow or we're using feature branches and uh, kind of an approach to how they do testing as well. It's quite nice to get as well. So. so I can understand that a contractor would go in and say, these are the principal technologies that I, I work with. I'm a JavaScript developer or I, I do these particular frameworks or I, I can kind of get that that, um, that you'd go in with, with that kind of selling point. But you mentioned there about using Git flow, which I have no idea what that is. But it struck me that, so in the company that I work for, the developers use something called Perforce instead of Git. So do you take tooling into account when you're going in for jobs? Because that's not something that I would have immediately have thought of. Um, it is something that I ask in an interview. I want to know kind of what they're using on a day-to-day. -day. So as mm -hmm. part of my set of questions, I asked them, um, how they manage their project and what kind of tools they use, because it can be quite indicative of whether a company has kind of got it together or whether they are kind of um, <laughs> ad hoc. Um, yes. <laughs> to put it politely. Um, it. Yeah. And I tend to favor the more together companies just for ease, yes. really. Absolutely. I mean, often, well, sometimes it's not the case. Sometimes a company is growing and they're just like, look, we know our policies aren't good, but we're definitely open to change. And we're also looking for input, which is something that's really great about hiring a contractor, in my opinion, is because they've got a history and they've been in lots of environments, they can bring things from their history into your environment. And have you managed to do that? Is there any examples where you've actually managed to 
affect change in an organization? It's difficult. First, you've got to make sure the organization is ready for change and you can really rub people the wrong way if you bring in a forceful opinion. So you have to be tactful about it. The first contract I had was really good. And I managed to, so one of the things I like doing is mentoring developers and just uh, friends, colleagues, et cetera, because I quite like educating. And on this particular project, one of their devs was very hardline into making things really efficient. And whilst that is a good thing, it was also a very bad thing because the code was unreadable. So kind of mentoring him into an approach of, yes, you have shaved milliseconds off of that particular function, but now no one can read it. So kind of educating that kind of thing about readability. Another project I championed the idea of doing pull requests and code review, because I thought it was really fundamental to do that. You've got to have someone else review your work, in my opinion, just because everybody makes mistakes. And so, yeah, I pushed for that. They adopted it. And then they saw that it was getting better. So you talked about making change in an organization. Where does your desire to make that change in an organization come from? Because speaking personally, a lot of mine has been from making my work environment better. And it's been easier, at least, to ignore organizational problems that do not affect me day to day. And sort of implicitly with a contract, it's only going to affect you for a relatively small amount of time. Um, it does. So it's a bit personal for me to say it, but I tend to empathize with people a lot. So when I see other people struggling in parts of their day-to-day -day life, I kind of take it a little bit personally. I'm trying not to do that so much, but I can still see ways that things can be improved. <clears throat> so I try to say, talk to those guys and say, it's a bit strange that you've got this procedure. It doesn't quite seem efficient and you seem frustrated by it. Is there anything that you think we could do to fix that? and then maybe coach them into that kind of line of thought. And then maybe if they don't catch on, just maybe suggest it. But again, drawing on your experience from other projects, you can perhaps already see the kind of direction they may want to go in. Uh, yeah, I certainly have a bias. So given my experiences, I definitely have a bias towards certain approaches. One of the most difficult things is to put that aside and then maybe accept that the way that you're looking at is the right way or it's the right way for them especially mm. if I've come in on week one, I, I definitely can't put my foot down and say, everything you're doing is wrong because I've been there a week and I don't know the intricacies of their own project or the, the struggles they've been through to get to that point. So you have to wait a little bit to bed in to see how things flow. The first retrospective, I try and stay less vocal in, to be honest, mostly because people always ask you, oh, how's it going within the team? And the answer realistically always has to be great. Because you can't rock up on like week one and say, oh, it's terrible. Everything here is awful because no one is going to want to hear that. So I, I think tact is important. In your experience, obviously, week one is definitely no, no. And it probably depends per company. But would you say that there's sort of a ballpark timeline that actually you would start to try and introduce change? I don't think it's a time limit. So I've read a book called Leaders Eat Last, and it talks about the circle of safety. I think that's basically what it comes down to is once you feel safe enough in your position and comfortable enough with the people around you, you can start to speak to people and start to understand whether the organization is positioned for change or whether the pressures from above are just really preventing change at the moment and we've just got to get stuff done. When you've just got to get stuff done, you just get on with it and try not to worry too much about things you can't affect? Yes. Yeah, you've just got to... You work with your teammates to do the best you can. You empathize with them. They empathize with you. 
one thing I'm trying very recently is to not be negative about a project. It's so easy to get into the habit of saying, oh, look at this rubbish code that someone wrote in the past. But the fact is, you don't know the context of what that was written in. You don't know what pressures they faced at all. So trying to view it in a positive light of just, well, we don't know what they were, what gun they were under. So maybe we just give them a bit of slack and it's not all doom and gloom. It just needs to be rewritten or we have to work around it. But um, hard to maintain that mindset in a digital project. (laughs) (laughs) Been there plenty of times myself. So maybe thinking about why you're contracting, are there any downsides to contracting over full-time employment sort of? alternative income or anything on that kind of line there's loads of downsides there are loads of upsides as well but some of the biggest downsides are switching project i find personally a little bit heartbreaking because you go in you empathize with people you make friends with people and then the company just kind of runs out of budget and you're just like oh okay see you later (laughs) obviously you can still see these people But there's a difference when you work with people on a day-to-day basis than when you see them down the pub. The difference between friendship and camaraderie, I think. So in terms of bringing in income for yourself, how easy have you found it to find work? Or have you done periods of time when you can't find work? So one thing I always tell people that are thinking about getting into contracting is before you start, you must have three months runway. You've got to be able to pay your own way for three months. The other thing is when you come off the back of a project, you may not have a contract to go straight into. So then you just start interviewing again and start looking for new contracts. But there is a period between leaving your last contract and starting your next contract where, what's the name for it? Where you're insecure about your abilities. Imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome just slowly sets in gradually over time up until the point where you get that next contract. You're like, oh, I am good at my job. That's great. So you found imposter syndrome worse when you're out out of work rather than in work? Oh, for sure, yeah. Whilst I'm uh, in a position, I'm solving problems and I know I'm good at my job. Whilst I'm not working on a problem, it can slowly set in that, Maybe it was a fluke for the last 10 years, which it wasn't. That's interesting because I've not had a time where I wasn't a software engineer for over a decade now. And yeah, there's been very few, certainly every month in the last decade, I've written multiple days worth of code. And I've still had the imposter syndrome in the middle of all that. I I, I think I know kind of what you mean. You come back from a long holiday and you're like, oh, do I remember how to do all this again? But that's the closest I've had to that experience. I was going to say that there have been times when maybe I've been looking to move on. And, and maybe that that's the, the, the closest I can get is that there's been times when I've been looking to maybe, you know, start looking at for another job. And that's when I get imposter syndrome. You suddenly start to go, sure, I do all this on a day to day basis, but this is just all day to day stuff. And the company I go to next will want more somehow. When you're looking at potential new employment, a lot of job postings will post basically every skill set under the sun. Absolutely. Um, Because you have to have uh, 20 years of Android development and um, 300 (laughs) years of this. And you say, wow, okay, that's, that's intense. My best example of that, there was a position I wasn't going for it. It was one that I was looking over a job spec before it went out. On part of the job spec was must have administered MySQL databases for five years, something like that. And knowing the post that was being made available, I kind of said, well, 
they don't do any MySQL admin. And the response was, well, they log in occasionally and, and restart it. <laughs> I don't think you need five years experience for that, do you? <laughs> I don't think so. I think I can restart a MySQL database. <laughs> Never been a sysadmin in my life. I, absolutely. Job postings um, can make you feel a little bit inferior a lot of the time, especially when they're on trend as well with new and emerging technologies. So how do you deal with that? It's difficult. I think personally, I look at a job description and then look for markers where I know I excel at or things that I know I can do well and then appraise whether I have working knowledge of the other things or if I have an understanding of it. And then I also think about whether I'd be interested in doing it. So um, traditionally, one of the things I tend to avoid at the moment is just video streaming. It's just not something I've touched and I'm not particularly interested in it. But quite a few jobs are coming out at the moment where it's like, yeah, it must be super hot on video streaming. I'm like, well, maybe that one's not for me. Do you, do you find you have to use more of your free time to develop your skills as a software engineer? Oh, 100%. As a contractor, no one is paying you to do personal development. Your personal development is going to be in your personal time. There is still some work that you learn on the job because not every problem you come up against you will have solved in the past and sometimes you will need to pick up newer technologies. But if you want to really dive into something deeply, you have to do it on your own time, basically. I've witnessed projects before where developers and contractors have used projects to, it's like their own pet projects, to shoehorn in frameworks that aren't ready. The worst example that really upset me was someone bringing Kotlin into a project before it was publicly released. It's alpha technology. You can't just put that into a shippable product. <laughs> I was upset about that. That was before I joined that particular project. I was just left with the ramifications of it. But yes, yeah, so personal development becomes very personal, basically. You have to take charge of it. And focus on, I assume, what the market needs at that point. Yeah, that is a struggle. So especially in Android at the moment, it's, I think it's quite difficult because there are even more ways to build Android apps now. You've got Xamarin, Android, Java, Android, Kotlin, and now Flutter and React Native. Like just to name five on my hand, there's, I think there's even more than that. But those are the main dominant forces, especially with Flutter coming out from Google. It's very difficult to know which fork to take. And any of them might be used by a particular company. Well, Java, Android, and Kotlin Android, for sure. Flutter I haven't seen massive wide adoption yet. React Native, I've seen quite a few contracts asking for React Native expertise. Xamarin, I've also seen some Xamarin jobs, but not many. Yeah, I think it just muddies the water a little bit. Adding on top of that, new frameworks that come out within Android. So in the last couple of years, we've had things like MVP Sharp, so Model View Presenter, and MVVM, which is Model View Model View, something along those lines. But you've also got kind of the clean architecture, made a break for it, and then also the MVI, is the most recent one. I think that's model view intent. I think it's similar to the Redux pattern type thing. I think every one of these architectures has been recycled at least once over the last 10 years. <laughs> if, Massively. If not twice. I mean, Martin Fowler <laughs> basically wrote the book on all these patterns and then people have suddenly dug them out of a book and gone, let's do it. Let's bring it back with great success. But I think one of the frustrations I find is that it moves so quickly. I'm not entirely sure why, because we can still build apps in slightly older technology. The functionality is still going to be just as good. You'll have a greater, a wider pool of people that can work on it without having to educate everybody that comes to your project. Oh, we've got this fantastic new way of doing something. Like, well, why? From the individual developer's perspective, I've always taken an attitude that I should be working in a 
yeah, re- relatively recent technology, but definitely a stable one. I probably came to Ruby on Rails just as it stopped being cool. It's about four years ago now. And it, it works. It's really quick and easy to build relatively large applications that solve people's problems. And I don't really want to do anything else other than that. And and I still want to learn new technologies. I'm still interested in doing that. But the speed at which technology gets developed to the bleeding edge, as it were, I, I just couldn't keep up with that amount of learning. Well, I've heard it described in the web side of things as JavaScript fatigue. Yep. With multiple frameworks coming out all the time, having to keep up with like React.js versus Angular versus Vue versus whatever is in vogue that month. And I think similar is starting to happen on Android, especially since it became quite cool to write your own library. You've obviously put a lot of thought into picking your work environment and very consciously chosen how you want to work. Do you have a sort of ideal way of working that you wish existed? So for me, I have a thing about personal headspace. A modern trend recently is that we have open plan offices and there's a lot of collaboration, which is good, but sometimes you just want to think. And if you've got an open plan office without breakout rooms, it's incredibly hard to get that happening. So I visited the Facebook office before and they have a big kind of bullpen with lots of desks in, but then they must have just hundreds of breakout rooms. And some of these rooms will just be a small little room with just a big monitor and keyboard and everything. And it's just for one person to sit and do a teleconference call or just work in if they just need some time like away from a bullpen. The reason I mention that is because I think the same thing happens nowadays on Slack as well in a lot of places where you're kind of expected to be present and listening to the lifeblood of the company on Slack all the time and being responsive and being part of that conversation. I think it's a lot of mental overhead to have to carry. So for me, what I'd like is something called asynchronous work streams. This is the idea that you can get on with your work without having to collaborate with someone. Obviously, there will be times that you will need to collaborate, but just to kind of pencil those in so you're not springing it on someone to say, hey, are you free? Let's talk. You're like, well, you don't know if I was free. You've literally said, are you free? And then let's talk within half a second of each other. So I don't think my answer is really going to deter you. So that sounds an awful lot like how remote work generally happens, where they try to divide the work up in a way that requires as little parallel communication. It's all sort of asynchronous. Yes. So that is quite telling because I really love remote work. I live in Bournemouth. It's beautiful. I live in my house with my cat and my fiance. Whereas if I have to work in London, it takes me two hours to get to London. And if I'm working in London on consecutive days, I'll stay over. So that means I miss the cat my fiance and the house. Sort of in that order, but don't tell my other half that because she'll get mad. <laughs> Sorry, Chris can edit it into a different order. Should uh... <laughs> <laughs> I think she'll understand. We've, we've only just got the cat and it is adorable. <laughs> yeah, I think remote work is a fantastic proposition. I think it lowers the cost for companies to employ people. It means they don't have to have breakout spaces. And I think it's becoming more um, popular, especially with the kind of prevalence of new terms like remote friendly and remote first. I'm a big fan of the idea of remote first. I think it's a fantastic concept. It's essentially the idea that when you're having a conversation and you've got two people in the office and one person remote, everybody dials in from different locations, basically, so that you don't have the people in the office having sidebar conversations without the other person. I'm I'm pretty convinced that 
if you're going to run a company where even one person is remote, then you have to run the company as if everyone is remote. I've tried working in a situation where I was the remote person and the rest of the company was uh, sort of in situ and people didn't really think about it and it becomes very isolating very quickly. Uh, yes, I've heard of other companies, like companies that are really forward thinking, generally tend to do, this isn't really for contractors, this is mostly for perm stuff, but they'll do outings or they'll gather everybody together for like a bonding trip in the Himalayas or whatever. But the main thing is to get to know the people that you're talking to on a regular basis. And I think that works really well when everyone's remote because you can do a trip and then everyone's had that same experience. But when, even if you're going down, at one point I was going down once a month, even going down once a month to meet up with the rest of the team doesn't give you that same connection as it would as if you were in the office sort of 40 hours a week. Uh, yes, I think it's a lack of shared pain. Like if you're in the office and the internet goes down, then you're all complaining about it or you're all struggling with the same problem in the same vein. If something really good happens, like Ben and Jerry's truck pulls up outside and starts giving away free ice cream, excellent. But... No, very rarely. Um, but there are instances where cool stuff happens when you're together, right? But uh, I think one of the best things I saw was Stack Overflow, or the company, that I, I can't remember the company's name, but the, do you remember what they're called? I think it's Fog Creek, is it? Yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah, so one of the things they did was they had an office and they had remote workers. But even if you were going to have a call with the guy next to you and he was in, that was his office, you would still dial him rather than going to see him face to face. Um, and the reason being is that then it doesn't matter if that person is in the cubicle next to you or they're working from home or they're working from the beach. You've still got the same conduit to talk to them through. And I thought that was a fantastic idea. I would definitely second that. We've talked a lot about the, the technical bits and the, the skills and stuff. One thing that we haven't touched on, I don't think, is sort of the businessy bit, because obviously you're a great technical guy that's got all this sort of great technical experience, but you're running your own company. Could you maybe give us a little bit of a feel for, for how that bit works? To begin with, it is a minefield when you first start out. When you first start contracting, there are some things that you need before you can start. You need to register a limited company. I say need. I'm going to say need for the, all of this. But there are some caveats. So you need to register a limited company. You need to have some insurance. So you need to have professional indemnity insurance so that if something goes wrong and you're sued, you don't lose all of your earnings. You need public liability insurance in case you trip or fall or someone trips over you in a workplace. And you should really have an accountant because running a limited company is... There's a lot of tax involved at varying different times throughout the year as well, especially if you're registered for VAT. And so it is quite a lot of admin work, really. You're sending out your own invoices. You're hoping to get paid on time and also scheduling when that income is going to come to you as a person rather than to your company. So essentially what happens is my company will invoice a client, then the limited company will pay corporation tax, and then the limited company will pay a dividend to myself. And then from that dividend, I will then personally pay HMRC some tax the same way that you guys would pay you have your gross salary and then you pay tax based on your tax band the same is true for contractors but it's just slightly different because it comes through a dividend instead of through payee anything else you'd like to talk to us about so i think one of the best things about being a contractor is the ability to be flexible when you come to an end of a contract you can make a decision as to 
when you want to pick up your next contract. The reason that's really helpful and really important is last year, I went to Japan at the end of a contract. It was great. Um, and yeah, yeah, I loved it. It was amazing. Definitely everyone go to Japan. Yeah, I did a, a couple of sums and figured that in the previous six months, I'd worked exceptionally hard. My company had built enough that I probably didn't have to rush out for another contract immediately. And that enabled me to take some time off and think about what I was going to do personal projects wise. So work on fitness or work on learning the piano. Now, the downside is that I never actually got to do those things because I had a relative die. If I had been permanent, I would have had no time to deal with grief. But as a contractor, I could find the flexibility to just deal with my stuff and to know that I still had an income coming in because I'd previously worked pretty tirelessly to build that income into the company. And it's just it's not something that I think you can do if you're permanent because you don't have that flexibility to take the time off. Plenty of people have talked about taking time off as a freelancer being important. But there's also that difficulty, like you want to make sure that you're still earning money and bring that in. How, how easy do you find it to force yourself to take those breaks? It's difficult. One of the things I've started doing very recently is to figure out revenue targets. So often it's easy to look at how much a contract is paying on a day rate and just think, you know what, I'm just going to go for the highest day rate I can physically find and just work that until I'm blue in the face. But then you'll just keep working. So one of the things I'm looking at is how much revenue do I actually want to generate? Like how much do I want to earn? And then how much time can I take for myself to work on the things that I really want to work on? So as I said, things like health, learning the piano, I've kind of got a house that I really should renovate at some point, just little things. So, but yeah, forcing yourself to take the time off is difficult. And there's also the fear that you might become outdated given the speed the technology moves. So this last one was a little bit of a test to see what would happen if I took a couple of months off. So I think I took about four months off. And frankly, it was absolutely fine. The world did not move as fast as I thought it would. So what do you think is the best thing about contracting? Firstly, sort of for yourself as the contractor, and secondly, for the company. One of the best parts about contracting is that you get to see many different companies and different environments, different ways of working, and you get to meet more people from different walks of life. So it starts to give you empathy for different roles within a team, but also you get to see a wide variety of libraries and all kinds of different projects. And if I was a permanent member of staff, I might not get to see that. And I'd certainly be more, I'd be using similar technologies, I think, for a long period of time. One thing I've noticed with teams that I go in and see is sometimes they can be very set in their ways, as you would once you get comfortable. So having a contractor come in can be positively disruptive. But I think for companies, it can be really beneficial for that exact reason. You bring in someone new that hasn't been so close to the problem. It's the same way that when you need help with the problem, you speak to someone else and explain the problem to them. And they've got a fresh perspective. And the same is true for a contractor. And they're hopefully an authority on the subject that you've brought them in on. So if you're hiring a full stack dev, You bring them in and you can ask them questions that you may have asked your team already, but you'll get a different answer. And that's that's good. It gives you more information to go on. The ability to spin up and spin down, I think, is quite important as well, especially for agencies or companies that have ebbs and flows in their products. I mentioned near the start of the podcast that I run a meetup in Bournemouth. So if you find yourself in Bournemouth, 
and you are around on the second Wednesday of the month, you should come along to Mobile Dorset. We welcome anyone that's enthusiastic about mobile, whether they're developers, designers, hobbyists, or just someone who wants to know how to build an app. They're all welcome to come along, really. Sometimes we have talks and sometimes we have discussions. It's a lot of fun. They can find us on Eventbrite, where it's under Mobile Dorset. And we also have a website called mobiledorset.com. And we have a pretty active Twitter as well, which is at Mobile Dorset. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at tech underscore point underscore zero. We hope you join us again for the next episode. Oh,